0: Who's Hey. Who's Hey. What's going on? 51. Yeah. And the clock's changed, and I forget how dark it gets. You always forget in the summer how dark and cold it gets here. Yeah, it's, it's
1: instantly dark in the evenings now.
0: I mean, like, we, you, you know, a few months ago we were doing this, and it was bright out, and it was nice, and it was sunny, and by the time we even leave the office, it's already dark.
1: I can tell you, you you'll understand daylight savings times if you live far north, or far... North enough?
0: I think one, th- I, I didn't, I guess if I thought about this initially, I would have recognized it. But for some reason, I didn't realize not everybody in the world applied daylight savings. Oh, yeah. And I, I really should know that. But I, you know, the US does it and Europe does it. And even Lena, who are our podcast editor, uh, Malaysia doesn't do it, I don't believe.
1: No, yeah, the closer you are to the equator, the less it matters. So uh,
0: it was it was it's just one of those things that yeah, I assumed, um, but if I had thought about it for a moment, I would have realized that assumption was incorrect. Yeah. Uh, but I was talking to somebody over in the Philippines and they were like, What what the hell are you talking about? I was like, <laughs> sunsets oh. at six. That's yeah. how it works every day. <laughs> yeah, sunsets <laughs> at five now. Jesus. Uh so what do we what are we gonna talk about today?
1: Yeah, we call it the not invented here syndrome. I love it already. Yeah.
0: I think everyone will know what we're talking about at this point.
1: Yeah. I think we talked about it before, but we have a little bit more that we want to say about it.
0: We're going to expand upon it and give awesome examples from our past.
1: Yeah. I'm old.
0: You're old. Lots you're not really past. that old. <laughs> you don't have as much gray hair yet. Yeah. So I, I think the where this came about is a lot of times being a consultancy, teams will change within our company. And this is what you're talking about earlier, yeah, teams will change within our company for the same client and we have to present a unified front yeah. to that client. And sometimes, you know, you obviously get new team members on there and they'll want to understand what happened. And one of the things that we really try to do carefully is ensure that all team members understand what has happened before they came so they can present a unified front. But this doesn't always happen. This is something I think we do a pretty good job of at Raft uh, for, for our client base. Uh, but this hasn't always happened with our past jobs and our past teams. And I think that's what we're going to talk about and how designers can, uh, can hopefully circumvent or get around this issue and really deliver better work and think more, more holistically.
1: Yeah. All we want to do when we get the, the chance to design a project is, is deliver the best product we can. Right.
0: But when you say that, I think everyone has a slightly different subjective idea of what the best product is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh. What I see happening a lot in design teams is that, and I think you should really call people out on this if you see it happening, is people start to speak in certain ways where they say, I think the customer needs this or the customer wants to have that. And I think it's really important that we do it in this way to serve the customer best. But sometimes if you listen really well, you can hear, I want to do this because it would make me proud or I want to have this in there because I saw it in another app and it's an amazing feature.
0: Well, and I think both of those things, what's really important about it is part of that pride is ego, right? Part of this is where it comes from. I want to put my stamp on it. I want to be proud of it. I want to say it is mine. But the second part is interesting, which is I'm looking at competitors as a benchmark uh, and I'm going to use them in order to demonstrate what I think this application needs Instead of really thinking, did the competitors get it right, do we need what they have, or do we think that the, the target group can live with a little bit less in order to get something out the door? So I think both of those were actually really good examples.
1: Yeah, and I think you really need to see within what constraints you're working. Are there hardware constraints? Do you have less time to build the application with the developers and uh, and work side by side to get certain details ironed out? or can you really not even grasp the details of what your competitor has built to such a level that you can build it in one go, right? It's nice to learn by seeing examples that other people made, but that doesn't mean that you can always get them right in one go.
0: Definitely. So let me, let me pull up a, uh, a question, yeah. and I'll explain why I think this question is interesting. What are you assuming, and what have you observed firsthand, right? And, and why this mm-hmm. question is interesting is specifically because totally... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, unrelated? No. No, not unrelated. God, what's the word? Uh, basically, a plug yeah. for uh, for a new set of cards we have. Yeah. Uh, well, we have to. Come we on. we do. It, this is this is critical. We're it's... getting so off topic and and strained here, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, so we we had uh, on the raft website, we have a new set of cards that offers you a uh, a set of questions uh, that allow you to basically reframe your problem in different ways. And anyways, that's one of the questions. We can come yeah. back to that later. But if we go back to what you were saying, you know, what have you done to look at your competitors? What have you really understood? What have you understood from the technical constraints or from the market needs? And to, to paraphrase that question again, what are you assuming versus what have you observed? I'll give you a good example here. Okay. I'll just kick Do this it. right off. Do it. Several people who have been listening to the podcast for a long time will know that I worked on the IKEA uh, connected lighting project, Yeah. right? They've launched that. It's been a great success, and I was uh, responsible for the digital side, right? So the application and then sort of how, uh, how things worked from an interaction design point of view. Uh, of course, I had, I don't want to take a bunch of credit, I had a bunch of smart designers, and I pretty much just sat there and, and was like, yay, I, I, I think I'm important. But they really did a lot of the, the really good work. But when we were getting into the application, right, the first thing you do when you d- design a connected lighting application is you start to think, well, what do your competitors have? Exactly what you said a moment ago, Yeah. right? So we looked through a bunch of connected lighting competitors and we found out that you could turn on and off the lights. This is on the application, right? All on the digital side that's on your phone. You can turn on and off the lights. Uh, you can dim the lights with Philips Hue and others. You can change it uh, to millions of colors if it's a colored bulb, mm-hmm. right? And you can set up um, you know, lights to turn on automatically at times. You can set timers for things. And there's several other pieces of functionality, some strobe lights, some going to music. And when we first started creating the project, we had this whole list of things that we wanted. And this was critical for the MVP, for the minimum viable product, yeah. because our competitors had it. And this is something I, uh, I, I give IKEA a lot of credit on this because they, they basically came to us in a lot of times and said, look, our customers aren't the tech people who are buying Philips Hue. They yeah. don't need all of those features. And so we ended up really pulling back on the MVP to just have it turn on and off uh, and do some dimming and then you could make groups. Yeah. Right? It was very very minimal but what we found when we put the products out there was that a lot of people uh, were buying the connected bulbs that didn't even need the application. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think this was something where you know I, myself many of the other designers on the team had to put our ego aside and as you said you know we want to be proud of it but being proud of it I think at one point meant are we putting out something that lives up to our competitor's standards, instead of saying, are we putting out something that we know is going to get used by the target market, which was Ikea's customers, and they go to Ikea for a certain experience, and that experience is not what Philips Hue delivers.
1: Exactly, and I I think in this case, it's even important that maybe you could have gotten that functionality in there in a way that was not complex for the user, but the feedback that you got from Ikea is, not even like we don't want this, uh, this one to be as complex as the competition, but we want it to be toned down because that's what our customers want and they're expecting.
0: Well, one of the things that we did uh, together that I thought was actually uh, somewhat really smart is Philips Hue and there's Osram, LifeX that we looked at. You know, all these, like you have millions of colors at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and said, that doesn't seem very IKEA actually, right? We're going to give you 20 colors. Yeah. We can do millions, but the fact is not everything looks good. Not everything's going to work together well. So how do we create it and make it really, really simple for the users? And that was something, again, that I think it was v- it's very easy to look at this and say, well, I know what I'm doing. I know what to do, right? And this is what our competitors are doing. No one's going to buy something that's less than what the competitors have. But I feel that's such a myopic way of looking at it because you are assuming so much. And if you actually go out and look at how people use Philips Hue... And when we looked at how people were using the lights in our prototype, people weren't sitting around and using 16 million colors. Maybe one time when they first got it, they were yeah. right. Because they're like, oh yeah, I can do all this, but then you stop. And this is something where you need to say, okay, yes, this could be cool, but is it worth the investment to develop that technology and create that UI when people really aren't going to use it? Yes, they maybe use it once, but they're not going to use it long-term. And I think that's again, What are you assuming? What have you experienced firsthand? And can you put your ego aside in order to make the best product for the users who are in front of you?
1: And what I think IKEA has also spotted very well in their continued development of their smart lights is that they see that the Internet of Things market actually is is meant to be an ecosystem that is not like an Apple ecosystem where you buy everything from the same brand, but it will be very heterogeneous. whatever. No, no, not, of it, it's brands. not
0: homogeneous, yes. right? It's all, it's all, uh, it's an, it's a rich ecosystem of diverse, br- diverse brands.
1: Exactly. And maybe you want to create the light bulb as the output and the app as the input, but that doesn't mean people will use both of those. So what Ikea recently did is make their light bulbs work on other systems, like for instance, on the Philips Hue bridge. And now people can just buy these light bulbs and use them with their Philips Hue product. And I have some of these products at home and I can tell you, I don't use the Philips Hue app, but I use voice control or I use it via HomeKit on my iPad. So
0: I, I actually I get angry when I have to go up into the Philips Hue app. Yeah. I use it all with my Amazon Echo.
1: Yeah, so if you're brutally honest, you might as a designer want to make the best experience, but that doesn't mean you can win with your app.
0: So I think another great question from that wonderful card deck that we have, mm-hmm. where are your personal biases interfering? Right Now I would even extend that to where is your ego interfering? Yeah so the reason I think this happens, as, as we just said, you have this whole idea as a designer that you want to be proud of it and you have again, a set of biases or assumptions that you are working off of, and uh, you know this is where ethnography and research can come in handy, but there's also a level of humility and maturity that comes in putting your ego to the side. And where I see a lot of designers get uh, hung up on is maybe they've been working for five or six years and they have applied a set of methods and tools they have at their disposal in a certain way. And they've said, well, at this project, I did it this way and I will apply it again because it's comfortable, right? It is, it is scary to go out and try to apply, you know, a set of tools and processes in a different way than what you did last time. Because what you did last time, if it worked, it was comfortable, you can apply it again. But maybe, especially in a consultancy, you're at a different client. Maybe mm-hmm. that client has different needs. Maybe that's client's customers as different needs. And you can't always take that assumption that what worked before is going to work again, but I think this takes a level of, of what I said of, of humbleness and maturity to put aside that, Hey, I think I got this right. And to just listen to the client, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times designers want to come in and say, no, no, let me tell you exactly what hotness is. Yeah. Right. But I think it it takes a a real level of maturity to sit back and listen for a long time before you say anything. And if you like, I, I, sorry, you're about to say something, but this is where (laughs) you need to listen more as I'm, as I continue to talk and railroad right over Mm -hmm. you. This is a horrible example. (laughs) Um, but if you do more listening than you do talking, I think you'll end up with better results.
1: And what I also think is important is that you don't always get to design everything. These are the projects that are the best. Like there's a new company that's coming up with a new product and nothing has touched any people's hands yet.
0: Very rarely do you get to design everything, especially if you work in-house at a corporation. You work at any of the big companies, right? Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple. You will not get to design everything and you and you will get told, here's what you need to incorporate into.
1: And actually, I have been part of a project where we did get to take everything on. I can tell you that was not a blessing and that was very difficult to say, okay, so with this huge team that's going to do everything from hardware to software to websites to all of the touch points, how are we get going to get one single opinion out from that whole team? That's a whole different podcast. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. But when you get to design a smaller part of a system, you need to look at how does that complete system work, how are people used to that system working, and, and what are the decisions that seem to have been taken already that I'm going to have to embrace and incorporate in, in the best way possible in this new part that you're making of this whole system.
0: I'll give you an example uh, here, another example I think where I've learned a lot looking back at my career is very early on when I was working for Microsoft, I was working on a team that was external to the office team, but it still utilized the office name, right? So people who don't know office, right? Microsoft Office Word, Microsoft Office Excel, Mm -hmm. right? And this was Microsoft Office, this product, since I won't go into the details of what it is. (laughs) So within, within this product, the team had a sense that we had to create our own visual language, right? Microsoft Office had their visual language. They had their brand guidelines, but we sat outside the team. We had a separate design team. We had a separate development team. We sat in a separate building, but we used the same name. So everybody was like, well, we're separate from them. We should do our own thing. And when I look back on it, I mean, I was, I was at the time I was incredibly green, right? I'd only been working for a few years. And so I was like, yeah, like, that's right. We're our own independent people. Like we're our own independent team. Let's do it. And when I look back on it, it's one of the things I really... I don't know if I guess I'll say regret, but I did, I wasn't in a position to dictate otherwise nor was I in a position of knowledge to understand exactly, you know, where I was going with this. But we created a visual language that was sort of like office but not really. And we did some interaction work that was sort of like office but not really. And through that, you know, you're able to say, look what I, right? It's all like I contributed. Yeah. Right. Look at what not my team, because at that point I wasn't managing, but look at what the team with me did. Right. Mm -hmm. Look at we should be so proud of this. And all of that goes around the team that makes it, not around the people who use it. The people who use it get it sold to them in a suite of products, right? Microsoft Office products. So why the hell does this one product that has the same parent name? look slightly different and act slightly different. And the only reason it did was because the team themselves wanted to say, I, instead of say customer, right? And it wasn't even assumptions or biases. There was a sense of ego that I think got in the way of creating a better product because somebody wanted to say, look what we did as a team. And we put our own unique stamp on it instead of saying, what do we think the customers are actually going to respond to? And again, I I think that was something that to this day, I use that product as an example that when I walk into a consultancy, I'm sorry, when I walk into a client Mm -hmm. as a consultant, that I don't sit there and say, let me dictate things to you. Let me tell you how this product needs to be. And I try to ask a lot more questions to understand what they want to do to it and understand what they have at their disposal that I can make use of and make this product the best it can be within the system that they have.
1: Yeah, I think you need to be really aware of the fact that if you're designing a smaller part or a complementary part or just a different side of an experience even of something else, you shouldn't create extra stumbling blocks or or extra friction that you wouldn't have. Like a very simple example is the, uh when people switch from a Mac to a PC or the other way around, there's buttons that actually jump from the left to the right on your screen, like the okay and the cancel button are the other way around when you swap these computers and that creates a lot of friction. And at least there you're hopping from one ecosystem to another, but staying within like the world of office, like you're saying, I wouldn't imagine having to swap that the whole time. Certain decisions have been taken, and it doesn't mean that your new way is not better, but it might not be the correct moment to make that switch on a tiny space.
0: I think what drives me crazy is when you get a product in or a client in who wants to, let's say, design an application for a mobile um, mm-hmm. mobile device, Android, iOS, whatever it's going to be. And the team is like, well, we got to start from the ground up on this one. no one's ever done this before. Sweet Jesus. Uh, No. Okay. Look, there's pretty much two or three navigational methods that you can use. You really don't need to create anything new. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe once in a blue moon, once in a thousand applications, you need to do it because you want to be unique in some way, or the brand is unique, or you're trying to tell a unique story. But for the most part, there's two or three types of navigation that you can use and instead of spending the time on really finding what makes this product unique from an interaction design point of view, meaning what are the few uh, cues or presentation of information that make it unique and call it out as, as a great application for users, yeah. people will spend you know half their time saying, well, what's the navigation model we want to use you know, put those things aside. Put that put that part of your ego aside and say, "Look, we can plug and play these things. Let's find the parts of the application that are really going to make a difference to customers, and that's what we're going to pull out."
1: Yeah, basically, don't redesign a drop-down menu. Just use a drop-down menu.
0: Yeah. Know your common components, kids. Yeah. It, like, just come on. Interaction Design 101. Know n- no a text field from a dropdown, from a radio button, from a checkbox. If I have to explain that to someone, it sort of hurts my head.
1: I've been in that spot where I really thought I would have a cooler way of doing that. But keep in mind, the rest of the world has the common component. So even if yours in a vacuum would be better, people will get confused.
0: Oh, that's, that's such a good point is that, hey, I designed a better way to do something, but guess what? Nobody cares no, because I'm used to doing it a worse way, and that's fine, right? The keyboard is not, is not invented to make you faster, right? It's actually invented to make you slower, yeah. but we haven't changed it because everyone's used to it. Let it, you know, it's okay.
1: There are other keyboards out there, and it's horrible. I don't know if you ever had one in front of you. Yeah, Dvorak, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, no, no thanks. I'll, I'll just keep on with my weird way of typing. Yeah. No, yeah, so
0: that's a great point, right? I have a better way to do it. Yeah, but guess what? You're not in a position where you can dictate. You are not Apple or Microsoft where you can dictate what millions of people all do at once, right? Chances are you're a smaller application, so understand what ecosystem from an operating system you're plugging into. Yeah. Okay, so I think if we, if we wrap this up, the lessons that I would want people to take away from this are when you, when you come into a product... Set your ego aside on what you have understood previously from projects, yep. use the tools and methods that you have available to you to find out what works the best for the client and their consumer. See, and th-
1: see what ecosystem you are part of. Are you designing a tiny part, a big part? Uh, are there other products that
0: it has to live with? I, and I think for people listening to this, they're going to say, well, of course, and, and and no this is to me is that scene in goodwill hunting where robin williams is like it's not your fault right he has to say it like five times and then finally will sort of breaks down and that's what i feel like it's like set your ego aside oh yeah yeah no i did no 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 be humble and set your ego aside no of course i got it right and you got to really say that you got to check yeah. yourself every day and just say am i doing this because i think it's good or because it is what the customer needs it is what the technology team can absorb it is what the business is going to be able to sell
1: yeah so uh one more thing uh those cards you were talking about
0: oh i i, I wasn't i oh, i was gonna plug those right at the right at the very end did you have any any other last words no i think, I think okay right, right then let's do either. it yeah are you ready yeah i hear there's a new awesome set of uh, of cards available on the raft website can you tell me about those
1: Well, they're called the kaleidoscope cards. I love it already. Yeah, and um, they are there to uh, reframe your thoughts or get a new perspective when you're dealing with innovation or problem solving. So if you ever really get stuck with your team and you kind of don't really know how to go forward, this deck contains a a set of cards that can help you get unstuck.
0: Yeah, so there's a few that I'll just give here that I think are sort of unique or interesting. Yep. Um, Does your problem imply a solution? Right, I think this is relevant for today because so many times, you know, problems sort of will imply a solution, but people will want to work around that or find, or or they'll be like, no, 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 I'm going to do something better. So it's like, you have a problem, make it work, right? But no, 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 I want to do something unique for it. Mm -hmm. Choose your moments. I think for what we talked about earlier, what is the minimum requirement? And I almost think again, um, I don't need to read all of these, but it's broken into four categories of empathy, problem, exploration, and solution. And again, each one of the questions uh, and the, the follow along text is made to help you rethink or reframe uh, what you're working on. But I think what's important with, with these, and just like we were saying before, is whether it's, it's these questions, whether it's something different, really look at what that question is and ask it to yourself five times. You yeah. know, really sort of reflect back upon yourself and think if you're making the right decisions. So Chris, <laughs> it was good talking. Yeah. I think, we've, I think we've taken a little bit of time to get some of the last uh, podcasts up. Um, so I don't know, we may end up getting like three in a row here.
1: I, I think that'll happen. Yeah. Nice. Nice. If you're listening to this, thanks for listening to the past three in a week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. And we will, uh, we'll talk next week. Bye. Later, man.